This is basically a theory two, unit two, part two, burn trauma. <laughs> well, just my opinion, but burns are not a pleasant call. They're interesting, um, fun they are not, uh, but let's talk about the kinds of burns uh, we're going to encounter. Um, most of you will encounter um, anywhere between four to six severe burn cases in your entire career, so not very many on the whole, unless you're a ship magnet. and. Uh, you're just drawn towards those types of calls. Speaking of ship magnets, did I tell you about my uh, paramedic friend who's in Vanatua, near, um, off the coast of Australia? Him and his wife are volunteering as paramedics there. So he, uh, he went to Haiti uh, as a paramedic and took a group of paramedics from Halton with him. Uh, they joined him shortly thereafter. And then an even bigger group joined them thereafter because while uh, Grant was there, they had that big earthquake in Haiti. And as soon as they had the earthquake, all of us thought, well, that's because Grant is there. Mm -hmm. um, and anyway, they've been in Vanatois for a week, and they had a 6.5 uh, earthquake there. So not a lot of damage, but, uh, you know, again, <laughs> we thought, you know, Grant's there. You know, what's going to happen? Uh, okay, anyway, um, we're going to talk about uh, smoke inhalation, sources of burns, a little bit about products of combustion, a little on pathophysiology. Uh, the big things are measuring body surface area and uh, determining the level of fluid resuscitation required based on the body surface area. We'll talk a little bit about burns and abuse in children, sort of patterns to look for, uh, burn assessments and burn care in the field. <coughs> and um, um, so leading cause of deaths in fires is not um, thermal injuries it's smoke inhalation by far and um, uh, have any of you been in a fire had to escape a fire nobody okay so here's the thing um, I love this when I'm in a public place if the fire alarms go off uh, I leave uh, because I've been to fire with where people die and um, but what do most people do they hang around I'll give you an example uh, my wife and I were at a movie theater. The fire alarm went off. Uh, I thought, oh, that's not good. But it was, it felt more like, you know, this is going to be a real inconvenience, you know, because I really wanted to see this movie. <laughs> and my wife is really annoyed because every time we go out on a date, someone has a seizure or a heart attack or shortens of breath or something. And she likes to, uh, at parties, she likes to imitate me just to mock me. Hi, I'm Rob. I'm a paramedic. <laughs> blah, blah, blah. And uh, uh, very shortly after the alarm went off, uh, the movie stopped. And uh, I said to my wife, uh, we better go. So we got up and we walked and people were a little annoyed that we you know, made them stand up so we could get by them. And we walked from near the back of the theater towards the exits. We were the only ones leaving. The only ones. Nobody else was leaving. Uh, and this is exactly how people die. You know, you hear about these uh, fires in nightclubs, alarms go off, nobody moves, nobody shuts the music down, everyone gets trapped, and they all die. Um, so how often do fire alarms go off? Well, I don't know, if you live 
anyone live in an apartment building? Yeah, they go off a lot, right? <laughs> I know it's a pain in the butt. Um, but if you want to be safe, you should be at least making your way to the exits. Um, like I might, if I live in an apartment, I uh, used to when I was much younger, uh, I would maybe leave my apartment and stand in the stairwell. <coughs> um, so I'm ready to go. But um, this is how people die, is they become complacent. They, they, they get fire alarm after fire alarm after fire alarm and nothing happens and they become very complacent. Yeah, Ashley? I'm not trying to like, give people excuses, but I know when I lived like, in a really big apartment. Yeah, no excuses. In Toronto, and yeah. the firefighters would come over to PA and tell us to stay in our apartments until further notice. Yeah, because yeah. sometimes like, you're actually like, yeah. you get in that habit of like thinking like, okay, stay in the hotel otherwise. Well, the idea is you should have left before fire got there, right? Well, I so, knew they would say it, so, so yeah, I know. See, you become you become yeah. complacent. So you don't know if you're trapped in there. You don't know if the hallway's on fire outside of your apartment. You don't know what's going on, right? So that's the thing is, um, you know, we do the same thing. We experience the same thing. So we, we don't change our behaviors. And as a consequence, we end up trapped and end up dying. And smoke inhalation is debilitating very quickly. So imagine um, the room you're in starts filling with smoke, right? You might think, ah, it's just smoke. I'll lay down, maybe put a wet cloth over my face. But here's, here's the thing. It's full of carbon dioxide. Uh, which preferentially binds to your hemoglobin over oxygen, a 200 times greater affinity. And number two, when you're adding carbon dioxide to the room, you're displacing oxygen. So the oxygen percentage is dropping from 21% to 20% to 19%. When it gets down below 16%, uh, that's lethal, right? So combination of carbon dioxide decreasing oxygen concentration uh, is incapacitating very, very quickly. So you might just think it's a little bit of smoke. I can make my way through this. But very, very quickly, um, you'll become hypoxic, your level of consciousness will be altered, and you won't have the cognitive powers to make decisions to save yourself. So it's debilitating very fast, and that's why people die from smoke inhalation. And, uh, and people just become complacent. Uh, my advice to you, if you're ever in a public place, like a nightclub or something, fire alarms goes off, get out of the building right away. You know, don't have to run, but get out of the building calmly, quickly, uh, before people realize it's a really serious fire and people trample each other to death. That would be my advice to you. Right? You'll be the only ones in the club getting out, uh, but you'll be the survivors, right? No big deal if you go outside. You might die from the in inhaling the cigarette smoke from everyone else's out there. You know, taking the opportunity for a cigarette break to inhale carbon monoxide by some other means. But uh, I would say get out. Firefighters would tell you the same thing, like just don't stay in a building. You know, how many times in a lifetime do you have to leave a building because of a smoke alarm? It's not nearly as often as you think. Um, we know when the fire alarms uh, testing is going on here at the college, just bring your winter coat with you so that you have to go outside, you've got something warm to wear. That's what I always do. Or I stay at home those days. <laughs> um. <clears throat> so smoke inhalation by far the most common cause of fire-related deaths not just carbon dioxide, but we're talking about other inhaled toxins. Cyanide, um, hydrogen chloride, uh, other combustions, uh, products of combustion. So CO is the most common chemical uh, product of chemical combustion. And um, uh, about 50 to 80% of deaths are the result of smoke inhalation, so really, really high. And uh, as I mentioned, CO has a much higher affinity for 
oxygen uh, for hemoglobin than oxygen does and um, uh, what kind of oxygen saturation reading do you get on your pulse oximeter when someone's got uh, uh, say 50% CO2 bound hmm? yeah falsely high right because the pulse oximeter can't distinguish between carboxyhemoglobin and carbaminohemoglobin which is CO, CO bound to um, hemoglobin um, so you want to get a bit of a history um, try to um, you know, if, if you've got someone who's come out of a building and they're talking to you, you want to try to get some idea of the length of the exposure, um, were they in a closed space, uh, those things uh, may determine. And generally speaking, we always err on the side of caution and treat them fairly aggressively. So if they've been in, if there's any potential for smoke inhalation, they're going to get a non-rebreather mask at 12 to 15 liters, and they're going to get it for at least 30 minutes. And if they have any symptoms whatsoever, we're going to transport them to hospital any headache, any nausea, any feeling unwell, or just uh, the history suggests a, uh, you know, a 10 minute or more um, exposure to, to uh, smoke, we're going to take them to the hospital because we don't know what other chemicals they've inhaled and whether they might um, have latent injuries. You know, if they've inhaled some toxins that are going to be ir irritating to the lungs, they might feel fine now, 20 minutes from now they start to develop pulmonary edema. That ringing really is annoying. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I can hear it when you guys when you guys aren't talking. I can hear it. Yeah. You ever see if that other classroom was open? No, I haven't checked on that. I got to do that. I might uh, I might file a disability claim. Tell them I'm you know I'm, I just had a heart attack and I can't walk that far. <laughs> yeah. Just stay in there. Just see what yeah. I should, I should take advantage of accommodations I'm entitled to. That's what I should do. But I thought the walking would be good. You know, I'm getting my steps in on my phone, so I'm really excited. It's like, you know. uh, so watch for early signs of, of carbon monoxide poisoning. So um, for example, 20-30% uh, carboxyhemoglobin um, will give you, uh, or carbaminohemoglobin, um, is either term, will give you a headache throbbing in the temples. Um, 30 to 40 percent will cause an altered mental status, maybe nausea, vomiting. And uh, 40 to 50 percent, this is on the board, bordering on life-threatening, will give you uh, tachypnea, tachycardia, severe headache and collapse. And uh, 50 to 60 percent causes coma and seizure. Notice I didn't put death in there because people get seizure, coma, death stuck in their head. And not all things to lead to cedar coma death, but obviously this could lead to death. I'm just waiting for the first call where someone tries to kill themselves with their car exhaust and they forget that they're, they have an electric vehicle and so nothing's gonna happen, you know. <laughs> That'll make a great call. I love that, uh, anyone seen that video tube where this lady's trying to, uh, she pulls her uh, probably someone else's Tesla into a gas station is trying to fill, looking for the gas cap. It kind of makes me angry, actually, that someone was there mocking her. So, um, carboxyhemoglobins of greater than 25% are an indication for hyperbaric ther therapy. Uh, so that means they'd have to be taken to a hyperbaric chamber in Toronto. Yep, or Hamilton. In, um, 
Yeah, so it dissipates really, really fast. I would, uh, um, well, you're probably going to arrive there at about the same time as police and fire. Uh, I would, it's probably best if fire opens a garage door and uh, shuts off the vehicle and just let the, it dissipates in seconds and then you can go in and pull the guy out or the girl out and resuscitate. Um, Did I tell you the story about, um, uh, you know, frostbite is treated like burns. People with frostbite go to the burn unit. So I tell you the story about the, the lady who, um, her husband left her and she drove to a, a golf course parking lot in the middle of winter and she overdosed on some sleeping pills, tried to kill herself, did I tell you the story? And she, uh, um, she slept for 24 hours. When she woke up, she tried to get out of her car and uh, tripped and couldn't stand on her feet um, and went back in the car took another overdose and slept for another 24 hours and somebody walking his dog found her and uh, both her legs were frozen solid right up to mid thigh and if you've ever seen um, you ever see a piece of big piece of meat that you put in the freezer uh, when it freezes and <coughs> contracts it becomes almost translucent like you can see the muscle more clearly and that's what you could see on her you can see the muscle through the skin because it was her legs were frozen rock rock solid and um, anyway she ended up having both her legs amputated uh, and then her husband went back to her and uh, they got back together after that yeah yeah so I'm going to bad story anyway sorry burns make me think of that call so <laughs> I had to pause that. I know that's bad, eh? <laughs> yeah, okay. Every year I tell that joke, but it's a different audience, so it's. <laughs> All right, uh, so if you get someone suspected CO poisoning, we're going to hyper-oxygenate, not hyperventilate, but hyper-oxygenate. That means non-rebreather mask, 10 to 15 liters per minute for a minimum of 30 minutes. Uh, and if you're going to give them oxygen, then we should be transporting. So if they don't want to go to the hospital, we should still be trying to convince them to go to the hospital. Just and and uh, in order to get informed consent or inform uh, rejection of consent or denial of consent, we need to inform them that we're not only talking about the potential for carbon monoxide in the blood, but also cyanide, other chemicals that can be irritating to the lungs that could lead to fluid buildup in the lungs later, you know, in the next half an hour to an hour, two hours. Um, so we need to paint a bit of a scary picture so we can convince them to go to the hospital. Uh, ventilatory assistance on a PRN basis, uh, pulse oximetry, limited value, you know why. So let's talk about burns then. So um, as if you've ever played Trivial Pursuit, you'll know one of the Trivial Pursuit questions is what's the largest or organ of the body? And that's the skin. And uh, the skin plays uh, a, uh, quite a number of different roles. One is um, helps uh, regulate temperature of the body by uh, insulating the body and preventing uh, fluid loss as well. It's, uh, you know, you could say that we're hermetically sealed and that 
uh, gives us some protection from both fluid loss but also acts as a barrier against uh, infection. It also contains sensory receptors that provide information about our environment, touch, heat, colds, sharp, dull, um, and disruption of the skin uh, creates a number of problems. Uh, apart from the fact that it's excruciating or painful for the patient if it's, if it's first and second degree burns, uh, they're also more susceptible to hypothermia, they're more susceptible to infection, and so the objective when we're putting on personal protective equipment is not so much to protect ourselves from the patient, it's to protect the patient from us. Right? Like we're exhaling droplets with microbes on them, various microbes, and normally those are harmless to most people. Um, you know, if you and I have a conversation face to face, we're, you know, uh, a few inches away from each other, we're going to be exchanging bacteria and viruses. <laughs> Nice thought, eh? <laughs> Next time you're out on a date with somebody for the first time, you get a little too close, you're thinking, oh my God, there's like billions of pathogens floating between us. <laughs> Can't do this, back away! Um, and with a burn patient, uh, we, we don't want to expose them to uh, our, our own pathogens, our own uh, uh, bacteria and viruses. Uh, so the objective is to protect the patient from musk and to uh, uh, reduce the risk of injury to them by various causes. Now, typically we'll put on non-sterile gloves. Uh, we want to try to keep those as, um, we want to uh, avoid wherever possible direct contact between our gloved hands and their body surface area burns. Um, if we're going to touch their burns, we want to touch them with sterile dressings and uh, um, irrigate those with normal saline, but we want to keep our hands off. So the skin's divided into three layers. Uh, have you guys gone over the integumentary system in anatomy and physiology? Okay, so you're doing that next week? Or the week after? Okay. Okay, so the epidermis is the outer layer, as you know, it's very, very small, you know, 0.07 to uh, 0.12 millimeters thin extraordinarily thin and you know how small a millimeter is. Uh, there's no blood supply to the epidermis and um, the outer surface, uh, those skin layers die and they slough off and uh, newer cells divide at the stratum germin germ germinatum and um, they're called the basal layer. Uh, below that is the dermis and uh, that's the middle layer composed of mostly connected tissue and the collagen and uh, it has a rich supply of capillaries and um, that uh, nourish the skin, the nerve endings and the hair follicles. Uh, and then below the dermis is the subcutaneous layer, the hypodermis also called. And um, that's where we find our adipose tissue, connective tissue, and um, uh, it's the layer between the outer skin basically and the, the organs and the muscle. And um, let's talk about the degrees of burn. So, um, So the skin surface uh, near the heat source suffers uh, the most profound changes and what happens is cell membranes ruptured and are destroyed. Um, blood tends to coagulate in the capillaries. Whenever um, blood is heated, you get uh, coagulation of blood, so you get uh, uh, clots forming and um, 
you know, with first degree burns from uh, from sunburn, we don't worry about that. But burns any deeper than the epidermis, like down to the dermis, we worry about uh, clot formation and, and um, coagulation of skin. And so the skin layers rapidly coagulate. And you know, I think about when I think about coagulation, I think about frying eggs and what happens to the white of the egg and how it becomes kind of a solid gel-like substance. <coughs> but I can still eat eggs, which is really good, you know, as a paramedic, because lots of things, you know, you changes your uh, perception of things. One of the things, you know what food I really like is uh, ribs, but one of the things that bothers me about ribs is the intercostal arteries. Have you ever noticed those? When you pull, when you pull the meat off the bone, uh, you'll see the intercostal artery. So um, I often pull the meat away from the bone and then pull off the intercostal arteries and leave it on the plate, which really grosses out anyone I'm eating with. So you see all these little worm-like <laughs> vessels sitting on my plate. And, and that's from doing needle thoracostomies and knowing you gotta try to stay away from the uh, intercostal artery. So, um, yeah. So. I'm just telling you, this is what happens when you become a paramedic, is everything has a paramedic context to it. Fried eggs, delicious ribs, chicken wings. I have a real hard time eating chicken wings if the bone is fractured. Don't live in there. Wings are so good. Andrea, it's too late. No. It's, it's too late. I'm just... I'm, I'm helping. <laughs> I'm, I'm hoping that if I share my experience with you, that you'll be able to live through it and, and <laughs> still eat and enjoy life. <laughs> you know? I don't enjoy it. <laughs> okay. What about frying the raw steak when it's still bloody? Oh God. Yeah. So again, it's not the red isn't from the blood. It's it's uh, cameras from but. What's that? It's like a yeah, it's yeah. from a protein. Yeah, it's not from the blood. Yeah, see? That's why I got to talk about these things. Because I love a barbecued ribeye steak. Like, I cook a wicked medium ribeye steak on the barbecue. <laughs> have, you guys, have you guys over? Sure. Um, March break, my wife and my daughter away. We should have a big party at my house. Just trash the place. <laughs> see, see what she says when she comes back. <laughs> so, um, uh, so when there's a, when there's a burn, you know, like any insult, there's going to be histamine released in the burns, and that's going to cause a vasodilation. And so, you know, one of the reasons why we see redness apart from the burn itself is because uh, you get capillary dilation in, in first degree burns. And um, um, uh, sometimes with uh, secondary burns, you get uh, dilation and leaking of uh, blood plasma uh, that seeps into the interstitial space, and this is why we see blistering in secondary burns. And um, so there's continued damage to, to tissue, and uh, the burns don't stop uh, after they've happened. Uh, they continue sometimes for hours, and even though we, we might irrigate the burn for 30, 30 minutes to an hour, and we've sufficiently cooled the burn at that point, uh, even in the ER, there's, uh, it's an ongoing, it's a dynamic process. And uh, uh, so they'll do th additional things in hospital to mitigate that continuing the burning that happens. Uh, one of the, one of the uh, um, 
really bad ways to burn yourself is to uh, uh, spill tar on yourself because the tar um, you know gets on your skin and then it hardens and you can't you can cool the tar but you can't cool the tissue underneath it which is really bad and they use a form of uh, mineral oil in the ER to get the tar off uh, it's nasty stuff I had a guy who was doing some roofing and he had uh, he had tar spills all down his legs and his a part of one arm and yeah, it was nasty and uh, of course my partner did the usual no I won't even tell you it's so dumb okay um, so this continued damage with release of uh, these mediators of inflammation, leukotrienes, uh, uh, that's one of the mediators of inflammation, prostaglandins, oxygen-free radicals, histamine. Um, leukotrienes, so I'll give you an example, uh, it's a mediator of inflammation and uh, asthmatics are sometimes on leukotriene uh, inhibitors, uh, like Advair is a leukotriene inhibitor example just giving you some additional context so larger burns lead to uh, systemic increases in ca cap refill and ultimately results in uh, fluid leaking from the capillaries and the venules into the interstitial space they call that third spacing and um, they become volume depleted they become essentially hypovolemic just like a hemorrhagic shock only it's a slower fluid loss and um, results in hypovolemia poor tissue perfusion and um, that becomes a vicious circle because of this the tissue is damaged and fluid is being lost and the patient becoming volume depleted you still need adequate blood supply to that area to do repair work right but if you your uh, circulatory system is compromised uh, then that repair work gets delayed so um, in terms of patho um, this is uh, uh, thermal burns uh, uh, cause this thing called the Jackson's theory of thermal wound where you get this zone of coagulation these are dead cells white charry appearance that's what we see in the third degree burn or full thickness burn and then this um, zone of stasis where um, the blood supply is somewhat precarious capillaries are damaged blood flows uh, inhibited to some extent there may be uh, coagulation occurring in those capillaries and then the zone of uh, hyperemia which is um, intact circulation and uh, it can be blanched. Um, so in other words, if you, if you put your finger on it and you see cap refill, you know you've got some circulation in that area. But generally speaking, if you've got someone with, let's say second or third degree burns, we don't start poking our thumb around to see where the blanching area is. <laughs> you know? um, they'll do that in the burn unit. You and I are just going to uh, observe the burn, try to get an estimate of the body surface area, try to determine the depth, the surface area, and then uh, resuscitate accordingly. So uh, sources of burn, flames account for 33%, uh, scalds 30%, that's things like spilling boiled water. I have to tell you one story. So I'm having a bad day with my, uh, my shoes. My, uh, my steel-toed boots, the, um, the sole uh, is peeled off in the front of my boot. And so my, my sole is sort of flapping as I walk. So I took some pink tape and I wrapped it around my boot uh, because otherwise I had to walk like this, kind of a Monty Python walk to keep from tripping. Right? And um, so this tape is working pretty well, but we get this call 
And when I get out of the ambulance, I realize that the tape is busted, so now I'm doing this walk again. And uh, this lady was boiling some potatoes, big pot of boiling potatoes on the stove, and it spilled off the stove, and it scalded her, and she was lying on the kitchen floor on her back. And I come in like this, and I step right into the water and went, and uh, went down onto the floor with her <laughs> and kind of uh, quickly rolled over and put my hand like this and said, Hi, <laughs> I'm Rob. I'm one of the paramedics. I confess this wasn't my most graceful entrance, but uh, anyway, she had uh, second degree burns from skulls. Um, contact accounts for about 15%, uh, flash about uh, 10%. Um, um, you know, some of the common flash burns we see in the summer are uh, usually drunk men, because uh, men are not as smart as women, we know this, um, who are, you know, got the campfire and they take a can of gas and they want to shoot some gasoline onto the fire. So that's what they do with the tanks. They go, and the fire goes from the fire pit to the gas, to the gas tank, to the idiot holding the gas tank. And we see burns that way. I've had a couple of burns, uh, burn patients, where they were filling up their gas tank and smoking a cigarette <laughs> while they're doing that. Now, the other thing is you're not supposed to use a cell phone when you're filling up your gas tank. I don't know if you know this. But um, you don't always see the warning signs on, your, on the gas pump, but some gas pumps have them. But you should not be texting or talking or using the ambulance portable radio when, when you're filling up the tank. So I carry my, if I go out to fill the ambulance, I carry the portable radio so I can hear transmissions, but I'm not going to transmit back because it can cause a spark and then kaboom, right? So flash burns. The other one's good for scalding, getting back to scalding, is your car overheats and people open up, take the radiator cap off when the engine's overheated. That's a good one. That, that water will just spray into your face, you know, that secondary burns in your face. So never ever do that. Make sure your car cools down before you take off the radiator cap. And when you do take it off, you want to take it off with a gloved hand and be really, really careful. But I would wait half an hour to an hour for that car to cool down. <coughs> Electrical burns, another cause. Friction is another one. You know, like ropes. You got a rope that's overhanging a creek, and you take a swing off the rope, and you slide down the rope, and you end up with friction burns on the on the hands. The emerge departments uh, at least once a year get someone coming in with friction burns on their on their knees from the carpet. We'll just leave it at that. because I know your minds just go straight to it, so. Being the, uh, radiation. So these are stats from the University of Toronto. Um, these stats are a little bit old. Uh, these are deaths per 100,000. Um, so Canada ranks 1.46, so uh, still fairly high up there, but um, we're below the United States, and that's all that matters, is being better <laughs> than the United States. You know. We live longer, we have a lower infant mortality, and we die from burns less often. So we're good. We're good.
Uh, so flames, um, as we talked about earlier, when you've got flames, you've got carbon monoxide, uh, you've got uh, spaces that may be poorly ventilated, which means you've got a decrease in oxygen content, increasing in carbon uh, dioxide and monoxide concentration, and that uh, uh, leads to disaster. Um, so um, with CO, we're looking at uh, uh, concentrations of 4,000 parts per million uh, will cause produce coma death. Uh, as I say, most paramedic services now carry carbon monoxide monitors uh, on their main kit bag, which has really been good. There have been, there's usually at least one incident per year where paramedics go into someone's house and the CO alarm goes off and they realize that people in the house are sick because they've got a faulty furnace or something like that. So it's been a real lifesaver. <coughs> All started with a, uh, a crew out of Hamilton that went to uh, an older house and they had uh, the whole family was sick. And the minute you find out the whole family's sick, don't assume that it's just a virus that's spreading from family member to family member. Assume it's CO poisoning until proven otherwise. So flames. Um, when products burn, they produce a number of toxins, cyanide being one of them. And um, uh, so, for example, cyanide is released from burning of nylon, wool, polyurethane, uh, urea formaldehyde. Um, the other chemical that's very toxic to the lungs is hydrogen chloride from burning plastics. And hydrogen chloride will put you into pulmonary edema very, very quickly. And that can be incapacitating and life-threatening. Um, and then there's uh, acrolein, uh, which is uh, another common toxic byproduct of combustion. Uh, freon gas, we don't worry about this too much, but uh, freon gas, sometimes uh, if you go to an older house with older appliances, particularly old, old refrigerators, like uh, some people keep these ancient refrigerators for their beer, uh, they may still kill, uh, keep freon. Uh, you will not find uh, a refrigerator anywhere on earth now with freon because it was destroying the ozone. So we've gotten rid of freon. And, um, but uh, if you inhale freon gas from a burnt, old refrigerator, um, they may feel fine at the scene and die a couple of days later. They call that latent death uh, because of the effects of the Freon. So, uh, Polyvinyl chloride, that's most plastics. Your IV bags are polyvinyl chloride. Your IV tubing is polyvinyl chloride. And when it's burned, it produces hydrogen chloride, uh, which is more toxic than carbon monoxide because it's irritating the lungs and puts you into pulmonary edema. And then you, you drown from your own fluids in your lungs. Um, the treatment for that is supportive care. If they're wheezing, we give them salbutamol and more salbutamol. If they require PPV, that's what we do. We positive pressure ventilate them. So uh, flames. So um, small concentration of hydrogen chloride and ammonia can cause uh, irritation of the respiratory system and uh, irritation of the eyes. If you have um, someone who's a who's inhaled smoke and their eyes are irritated, that can, might be an early warning sign. If their eyes are irritated, their lungs are probably going to be irritated. So auscultate the chest. Don't waste any time on the scene. Get them taken to the hospital. Um, and uh, so, as I said, uh, most uh, fire-related deaths are smoke inhalation-related. They may not have any cutaneous burns whatsoever. Um, doo -doo 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 -doo. Water burns, so bathtub sinks, when parents turn the hot water on and off. Um, um, when you buy your first house, uh, you should have the, uh, the temperature of your water 
turned down. It's always at the highest setting. Uh, as far as I know, it's still at the highest setting whenever you buy a new house. Uh, we had ours turned down because, uh, well, I'll tell you in a second, we'll go over the temperatures that are, that are lethal. So hot water splashed or spilled accounts for 21% of scalding injuries. Um, uh, people fall asleep in the bathtub accounts for 12.3%. Um, or while stepping, sorry, not while sleeping, while stepping out <laughs> or stepping in. Bathtub, hot tap water, but 10.5% uh, climbed into or fell out, of, fell into the bathtub sink, 9.6%. We see this mostly in elderly patients or uh, young kids, where the parents put the kid into the tub without realizing just how hot the water is. So uh, we look at the time it takes to get to a third degree burn, and at 68 degrees, and I think uh, most water heaters will heat up to about 60 degrees um, Celsius and you want to crank that down, I would crank that down to about 51. Uh, 51 is probably a reasonable temperature, um, uh, but 98 degrees or 37 degrees is a very warm bath. That's a very warm, that's like almost hot tub bath, right? That's the same temperature as your skin. Maybe a little higher than that in the hot tub, maybe 40, 42, but uh, 37 is pretty warm. That's a pretty cozy bath. But you look at that, 68 degrees Celsius will give you 30 degree burns in one second. That's amazing. 64, two seconds, 60 degrees will take five seconds, 56 degrees will take 15 seconds, 52 degrees will take a minute, uh, and um, 51 degrees will take three minutes, 48 degrees will take five minutes. So 48 degrees will be way too hot for a hot tub. That's way too hot. Um, so hot water, ideally, I, th I think I said, uh, Yeah, 48 degrees should not exceed uh, 48 degrees. So that's what you should set the hot water temperature at is about, I would say 46, uh, 46 to 48 degrees. Uh, hot tubs are typically kept below 40, uh, at about 40 degrees Celsius. Um, so that's hot water. Um, do you know what the, one of the most common causes of uh, the spread of Legionnaire's disease is? Yeah. Um, I think showers is number one, air conditioners is number two. But um, yeah, they, they, uh, the uh, Legionnaires tends to um, uh, grow in showers, like hotel showers. And um, so what I'll do when I go to a hotel, especially if it's a bit of a sketchy hotel, uh, which I try to avoid, but, <laughs> but uh, uh, and before I have a shower, I'll uh, turn the shower on as hot as it'll go and I'll leave the bathroom and uh, just let it run for a few minutes. And even before I go in there, I'll just um, hold my breath and maybe shut the shower off, fan out some of the, the vapor in there and uh, to kill off all the bacteria and then uh, get in and shower. So how many of you check for bed bugs when you go to hotels? Yeah, good, yeah, it's a good idea. Do you know where the worst uh, case of bed bugs is right now in Ontario? Mm -hmm. North Bay. Yeah, apparently North Bay is having a major problem with bed bugs. Have I started something? Yeah. She's a very south now. You didn't know.
Yeah. Yeah, I'm kind of. We kind of figured that. Yeah. They're all frozen. Um, so, in terms of inhalation burns, burns below the vocal cords. Burns below the vocal cords or the glottic opening, the glottis are very uncommon. Um, the most common cause of inhalation burns are steam burns. Uh, those are the ones that will produce uh, deep airway burns uh, or chemicals that are grossly irritating to the, the lungs and the airway. So um, um, one of the things that we look at uh, when we're worried about the airway is facial burns, neck burns, uh, burned eyelashes, burned nasal hairs, carbonaceous sputum in the mouth. You know, they've got this dark, charry stuff that they, it's on their tongue and they spit out. Um, we certainly worry about uh, airway burns, but, but I've had a lot of those patients and when you do laryngoscopy on them, you look at the vocal cords and vocal cords are usually okay, but it's the steam burns that are really nasty. Um, and uh, so to suspect airway burns, we look at things like, as I just said, burns to the face, singed uh, hairs, the beard, eyelids, eyelashes, <coughs> nasal hairs, soot around the mouth, black tongue, carbonaceous sputum, a hoarse voice, that's key. If you've got a patient with a hoarse voice, uh, there's a good chance they've got uh, burns around the glottis or at least an inflammatory process going on there and perhaps deeper. A strider would be an ominous sign, so uh, uh, that kind of a sound. <coughs> and uh, respiratory distress. Uh, so you want to look for burns around the lips, the tongue, the oropharynx. Uh, you don't scope patients, but ACPs will scope if they're going to put a tube in their airway and they look for redness around the glottis. Um, so the treatment, um, not all paramedics carry this, but some paramedics carry humidified O2, which is just basically a, a container of water that you connect to the oxygen regulator and then you connect the O2 tubing to this container of water and the oxygen goes through the water, vaporizes it, and you inhale it. So you're getting humidified O2 because uh, burned airways means dry airways and you want to keep them humidified. But most, most of you will end up working for paramedic services that don't have uh, humidified oxygen. Uh, one of the reasons why they took humidified oxygen off of most ambulances is because uh, there was a service uh, and um, they had some maintenance people um, doing deep cleans and restocking uh, of the, um, the ambulances and they found a, an ambulance where uh, they had this bottle of water attached to the O2 regulator and the water was partly frozen. Uh, so somebody, some genius had this idea, so non-paramedic, some genius had this idea that they would put um, um, antifreeze in this device. So they uh, uh, filled up all these humidified containers with a little bit of antifreeze to keep it from freezing not realizing that patients would be inhaling this. Now, someone discovered it before the ambulances went out because they could see the water was discolored and thought, this is a strange green color for this water. <laughs> and uh, so they pulled, not only did they pull all the humidifiers off the ambulances in that service, but uh, a memo went to the Ministry of Health and the memo, Ministry of Health issued a memo to all paramedic services taking, saying, taking, take your humidified oxygen bottles off every ambulance province-wide. <laughs> So for years and years and years, we went without humidified O2. Uh, and still the service where I work, there's no humidified O2. Um, for advanced care paramedics, I don't think we need to know about that, but uh, you get the general idea. Yeah, huh? Can you mobilize distilled water? 
Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, so the answer is yeah, and and you'd probably want to nebulize distilled water specifically, um, not normal saline, because normal saline has salt, and salt can be irritating to the lungs. But the reality is, uh, most of you are going to be working in areas where the transport times are fairly short, and so uh, nebulizing something is probably not the benefit. Probably just not adequate. But yeah, if you were, you know, looking at a 45-minute transport time from one hospital to a burn center or something, you might nebulize um, some sterile water. Might not be a bad idea. In that case, you're probably going to be transporting with a physician or nurse and just run it by them, see what they think. You know? Or unless they have a, uh, a bottle that they can connect to your regulator, that would work too. Riley, did you have a question? That was my question. That was your question. Amazing. You guys are like simpatico. They think alike. <laughs> Not <laughs> 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 <laughs>